This podcast is a frank discussion on sexual assault. If you are in the USA for free and confidential help, call 1-800-865-HOPE in Australia for confidential counseling and support in cases of sexual assault or abuse. Please call 1-800-RESPECT. Welcome to Open Stance, a platform created to cultivate, build, and nurture a unified and connective educational space for survivors and advocates of sexual abuse and sexual violence. Today, I speak with American Jessica Johnson, a former star scholarship track and field athlete for the University of Arkansas, Lady Razorbacks. In 2014, Jessica's impressive athletic and academic achievements were recognized and honored when she was named the NCAA Woman of the Year for the state of Arkansas. However, behind the accolades and accomplishments of this standout student athlete is the painful story of her experience of surviving sexual grooming and sexual abuse at the hands of her trusted university track and field coach, John Rembo. Jessica fearlessly sheds light on this horrific abuse of power, the emotional and physical aftermath she suffered as a result of this abuse, and how she and countless other student athletes were failed by the people and institutions who were meant to be protecting and empowering them. Jessica Johnson, your voice is brave, and you are fierce in your integrity to have the laws and policies reformed, making our sporting institutions accountable and safe for all athletes. It is my honor and privilege to welcome you to Open Stance. Hi, Jessica, how are you? I'm doing well, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Um, Just checking in here from Sydney, Australia. Where are you today? I am in Grapevine, Texas, just outside of the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport. Nice one. Well, Jessica, thanks for being here today. Um, I know it's nearly eight o'clock your time and you've got a sleepover going with a bunch of kids. So I appreciate you um, carving out this window for us. It's really important. Well, for our listeners, why don't you, um, if you were to write, say, a little Wikipedia paragraph about yourself to help us get a feel for who you are and where you're from, what, what would that look like? Um, okay, so I was born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area in Texas by two people from Ohio, so I don't have any dramatic accent or anything like that. Um, I went K-12 through in a rapidly growing town that's actually really well known now in Texas, um, South Lake, and uh, I was a track and field athlete growing up, which is how you and I came to talk to each other. Um, I was the state champion for Texas for three years. My senior year, I had mono, it was terrible. And I got second. Um, I accepted a full scholarship to the University of Texas that were national champions at the time for the NCAA division one and um, spent a year there, which we'll also talk about, transferred to the University of Arkansas where I realized I was a business major for a year at Texas and oh it's not a good fit for me at all my calling is medicine so I changed at the University of Arkansas and afterwards went to vet school 
when I retired from sports, I went to vet school and I now um, specialize in, uh, I'm not boarded, I'm very close, uh, but I'm a veterinarian and I specialize in oral maxillofacial surgery in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. So really kind of a small little niche, um, but is very needed in this area. That's... And I have three kids. I have three kids. I have a 10-year-old son and seven-year-old twin daughters. Amazing. Well, you packed it all in. That's for sure. I did. I threw it all in there. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, here's a question for you. So how are you feeling about this podcast today? I feel good about it. I, you know, my, my whole trauma, my horrible experience with my previous coach is something that has been very, I've been very open about. Um, it was terrible, but I got a lot of good help very quickly, which I think is unique. Um, I have a, a family member, my mother's in mental health, children's psychiatric nurse practitioner. And so she was very quick to realize that I needed help and I got it. And once I started understanding everything that happened during that time period, it, I, I just, I never looked back and it never became a secret. So it's easy to talk about it because I've been openly talking about it since 2000. That's the first time. That is incredible. You didn't let it become a secret. No, it's, it's actually a little bit, it can be very odd for people. Like if I'm at a super, well, let's say I'm at some sort of football, you know, in Texas football, I'm at some party and somebody's wearing a UT Longhorn shirt with that ugly burnt orange color that I have such distaste for <laughs> and did even before I went there. And if they're wearing that shirt and I say, oh, you know, ugh, what a terrible color. And they're like, oh, you went to Texas A&M. And I did to rival school. I went to vet school there. And I say, I did, but that's not why I don't like it. Well, why don't you like it? Well, my coach sexually assaulted and harassed me while I was there as a student athlete. So I had to leave and go to Arkansas. And usually that's kind of a, that what and you're like, yeah. And then I just kind of keep going <laughs> with what I was doing. Um, so it, it's, it's, I would, most people in my life have, have at some point heard the story about that. I think it's, I personally, that's incredible. It's one of the, the most impactful things on a human when you live with these deep, dark secrets of trauma and abuse. And I've heard it over and over and the damage that it causes. So from that perspective, it's incredible to hear that you had that pathway or that support system and ability to keep it from becoming a secret. It's been so devastating for so many survivors. So that's, um, that's awesome to hear. Well, and, and what kind of a layer to that onion that is, is somewhat interesting is, um, and sad. Um, my mother uh, grew up in Ohio in the 60s, and she was assaulted in middle school by a Catholic priest over and over again. Um, it was a Catholic high school and middle school. And she carried that um, and went into child psychiatry, you know, helping kids, depression, anxiety. And when I went through what I went through, um, she was very quick to get me help. She was so supportive. I mean, you know, so was my dad too, but you know, my mom could really identify the signs of what was going on quicker. And she still carried that secret for another 10 years before she finally told me when she 
around the time she turned 60, what had happened to her. And that at that time she was going public um, back in Ohio to have a statue removed of this, of this predator from, um, that was in her Catholic church she grew up in. That must have been a moment when she told you. Yeah, I mean, two generations of women, one in, you know, your pretty classic um, Catholic church situation, and then, and then sports. So, I mean, that's, and Positions. then for her to have to see, see me go through that, you know, and still hold on to what had happened to her and not feel ready to talk about it. That goes into this whole discussion on positions of power. So you've just mentioned um, priests, huge power, powerful position. And now we're talking about your story and coaches. So uh, Jessica, what was it like? How, what's, give us a little, um, a little feel for your coming up through America as one of the top track athletes. And what was that road to college like? So in terms of your recruitment, um, meeting, your coach, his name is John Rembo. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. yeah. So let us give us a little idea of what that was like and how you met this uh, or how you recruited and um, what that relationship started like and, and how yeah. it progressed. I mean, I, I feel very fortunate. I got into track and field when I was nine and was doing pretty serious summer track and field. And, and I got to tell you back then, you know, at the early nineties, late eighties, that was really, you, I see that now, but that was not something that you saw back then. And, and people thought it was strange that my parents were so invested taking me to track meets around the country and, um, and just that I would give up my whole summer, you know, no sleepaway camps, you know, I was just focusing and training. Um, but I loved it. I loved it. And so they supported me and got me good coaches. And so it was just, it was a blast. Cause I, I saw and did things that a lot of my classmates didn't do. I met different kinds of people. You know, I, I visited different locations. I just, I had exposure to a lot of different cultures that a small town in Texas would not, not otherwise afford you. Um, and I, you know, got to, I mean, it was constantly just um, positive reinforcement. Just, I did well and people, you know, oh, you did so good. And it just, it, you know, made me feel good about myself. and. It didn't take long. By the time I was in middle school, I knew that was going to pay for my way to college. Like I, I had hit that level where we saw the trajectory and we knew where it was going. And by the time I went to high school, I was already at a point where I could get a division one scholarship in what I was doing. So, um, so I mean, it was, it was a delight. And I met John Rembaugh at the Olympic Training Center. So the Olympic Training Center will also often have these junior elite programs for various sports. And I was invited to train there every summer for, for my event in track and field. And they have a, a women's development coach for the juniors and he was the coach. And so I had completed my senior year, or my freshman year, top freshman jumper in the country, there with the top sophomore and junior senior and um and I met John there and he just was like acting as if I, I had a lot to offer and and just incredible potential which I felt too but I felt very validated that I was hearing that from someone else and, and that was where I first met him and initiated contact and that contact you know there are those NCAA rules but I would um you know he invited me to a winter camp uh, that I went to, and um, 
I saw him every year at the Olympic Training Center, which I would consistently be invited to. And I got recruited by, you know, Boston University, you know, Stanford, Harvard, all, all, all UCLA, all, all these schools had a lot of options. And because I had known this coach and thought he was really a great coach, I mean, in order to coach the elite juniors, you would think that would be one of the best. And by the time I decided to go, when I was going to college, he was coaching for the women's national championship team. So it seemed like in order to continue to grow my career, that was the place to go. And that's inevitably, that's where I chose to go to college at the University of Texas at Austin. And what role did he have in getting you to the school? Was he actually the one recruiting you? Um, was yeah. he involved with you and your parents or, or what did that look like? So I met him when I was, I mean, I'm trying to think maybe 14, 15, somewhere around there. And, and you know, it came home and said, there's this coach. He's really great. He says, I'm going to be, you know, I'm very talented. And of course, every parent wants to hear that. And, you know, I told him where he was and we started that conversation as we were looking already to college, you know, it's three years away, but, you know, this is something we've been preparing for, for a long time. And he, you know, he got, he did get to know my parents. Um, they emailed, they had phone conversations um, his wife and he invited me to a camp that was over a winter break out there you know, when he was in Arizona before he went to UT. And I went out there and I attended the camp and I stayed with him and his wife. And there, I mean, so clearly there was a lot of trust there. Um, and so, yeah, I, by the time it was, you know, we were in that real recruiting season, you know, he came up and visited my family. May, my, I don't even, he may have even stayed, stayed at our house. I, I'm trying to recall if that, that, how that actually went down um but yeah he was quick to visit and definitely was very involved in recruiting me so establishing a real trusting relationships with you your parents um well and truly before college started oh without a doubt yeah, yeah. i mean i i feel like the other schools didn't really have a chance and, and in fact looking back it's really unfair to those schools that he had that advantage um and that, you know, being never being going to college, I didn't really know what the rules were. And I would assume that he was following them, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a well-to-do coach. So, so who is coaching for a top level program in the NCAA. This is interesting. Looking back at it now from your perspective, you you mentioned you got recruited by all the top schools, Stanford, Harvard, like you could have had your choice. All of these schools would have had the elite coaches as well. You're talking the creme de, <laughs> creme, de la creme of universities. Mm -hmm. So looking back, here's John Rembo, Rembo who's um, an elite coach, but what about the process with the other coaches? Did they do anything similar? So when you look back, were there warning signs now when you think, no, the other coaches weren't doing that or uh, were there oh, I mean, warning signs? All I, can, all I can see now is red flags, but I, I did not. It did not back. It was such a slow process. And again, I'm thinking I have him on this pedestal. Um, I didn't know those other coaches definitely were following the rules. And to me, it, that almost seemed like they weren't really that interested in me, which is completely unfair. 
because they they did follow the rules. They sent the letters when you, they were allowed to as a junior. They made the phone calls on the you know on the first time that they could in the summer before my senior year. So they did those things. Um, and I I had known this other coach for years before that that even happened. So yeah, it's nothing but red flags looking back because those you're rules saying were in place. That was illegal then, right? You, what you're saying is yeah, I mean, behavior. It, yeah, I, 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 I believe so. I mean, I, to this day, do not know exactly what those rules are and how they've changed, but there's a reason that they wait until your junior year, or at least back then for contact and then your senior year for that phone call. And, you know, those, that it's, it's only fair to all the colleges that are recruiting you. So it was not only unfair to them, but it, it really, it, it's all, it's unfair to them, but it was also unfair to me because I didn't get a chance to, to get to know those people at all. And this is a really strong piece of education for young student athletes today coming through the primary, well, high school ranks at this stage mm -hmm. and looking at being recruited by schools. And so many times when you're a kid in high school, um, you can't wait after all these years of hard work to look at who's recruiting you and be in contact mm -hmm. and get to that next place. So what you've just outlined is a really important piece to um, help people understand why these rules are in, why they're in place. And this is one of them to protect you. Well, I, I absolutely. And, and it is, um, it's also very easy when you are young and naive to be wooed and to hear if it seems too good to be true, if it seems a little bit over the top, in retrospect, it, it probably is. And through the lens at age 40, I mean, very inappropriate. Um, you know, when your coach is recruiting you, you should be talking about, you know, what are your academic goals? What are your educational goals? What are your, you know, your you know, grad school, what about, yeah, yes, what about your career? Or, I mean, your athletic career, what about your performances? I mean, all of those things matter. And so to really veer off topic consistently in those interactions is unnecessary. And that is what you have your friends and your family for. I mean, you're, when I left UT after having the experience that I did, I left it with a very different um, I really saw it as a business moving forward. I said, you know what? These coaches are, are, they're paid to coach me. They're going to be rewarded when I succeed. And um, this is a professional relationship. And it really suited me well to, to proceed with that in mind. Maybe a little bit more jaded than I, I would have liked or that I would hope for other people, but they're compartmentalizing it and know that what, what that relationship should be, you know, what box it should fit in and what boundaries should be around it are important. And when you're young and you really don't understand um, how not everybody has your best interests in mind, um, you know, you want to assume the best of people, you know, it, it, but unfortunately, Athletics do bring in certain people who are looking for certain things that are not always altruistic. Yeah. I think that was really important what you said there too about in the recruiting process, again, for um, 
young student athletes today to really size up the overall package. Of course, you're being recruited on a, um, for a sport, but to have introduction to the academic side into the overall picture and to be um, looking at the bigger picture of what your university life is going to provide for you. And also knowing that these coaches, um, they may be there your freshman year and then they may be gone the next year. So knowing that when you make that decision for that school, uh, that it is probably a warning sign or a danger sign if you're going just for one coach as opposed to the overall four-year opportunity that you've earned to go to a university. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> wow, the talk I would have with myself back then. I mean, I, it is, I get it. I get it. You know, when you're really motivated and you're, you know, you're a high-level athlete and it, it's easy to get into this thought or this mentality that I need a certain person. The reality is that you don't. And yet we, we all need a good coach who we can work with, but it is just one piece of the puzzle of that four-year career, you know, the, and student athletes look forward to college, right? I mean, it's so, I, I wanted to go from eighth grade. <laughs> I was like, send me on, like, I'm ready for this. I'm ready for the big leagues. Um, but you have to step back and you have to look at the big picture and make sure that, like you said, if your coach leaves or if there's a problem with the athletic, if that, if that is all you have, you know, to stand on there, what a disaster that that can be. And it was for me, it was. Yeah, because you also have things like injury. You're an athlete. So there's all the different mm -hmm. moving parts that an athlete needs to consider. So I love what you just said again. Um, what is that conversation you would have had with yourself um, in terms of making that decision? Here's um, a question that goes with it. Did you go to school thinking that you would transfer after a year or so? Yeah, I definitely didn't go to school with the intention of transferring. I, I never would have wanted that. Um, I The conversation that I would have with myself is that that I, I would tell myself not to go there. I mean, that's the number one thing that I would say. I would say that this coach is showing some obvious red flags. And and I, I had warnings. I, I had a previous athlete of his write me a letter and tell me, whatever you do, don't go there. And so what did I do? I immediately turned around and, and shared it with him. And of course he had an explanation and, and I was very naive at that time. So I, there were some red flags that I ignored. Um, I would tell myself that, you know, again, look at the big picture of what is going on. Think about what, what do you need from your coach um, and define what those things are. And if it doesn't fit in that box, or if it's not a conversation you can have with other people in the room, then it doesn't need to exist in general. Um, that your coach is there to serve a specific role. And they're, they're really not there to be your best friend. They're not, they're not there to be your counselor. They are not there to be romantically involved with. Um, they're, they're not there to be your tutor. I mean, your, your coach is there to be a mentor of sorts, but specifically in your, your athletic endeavors. And you need to make sure you're keeping them in that box because there are you have other mentors for your academics and you have other people you can go to um, if you're having problems in relationship and you have other people you can go to um, if you're having problems with your friends and and I think it's easy to all kind of fall back on the person that you're spending a lot of time with training every week but that's inappropriate 
and it's inappropriate because it can lead to unhealthy behaviors. And you're and vulnerabilities, to... you know, vulnerabilities, you know, that, that you may not be prepared for and you shouldn't have to deal with at such a young age. That's incredible education right there, because what you're saying from a 40 year old perspective now to your 17 year old self, how are you supposed to know this when you're 17? And the word was vulnerable, right? We go to school as young young kids um, with basically no knowledge. And you're supposed to sort all this stuff out by yourself in the midst of just wanting to play your sport and be great at it and have fun. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, and college is such a big transition. So, you know, if you need to prepare for what your different support systems are gonna look like and who your people are and where your support lies, and you need to know that you need to be able I mean, I think it's very important to put boundaries on your coaching relationships and that that's healthy for them. That's healthy for the coaches and for the athletes. And it's, you know, when I went to college, I, or when I went to growing up in the area that I did it was called the bubble. You lived in the bubble. It was sort of this, um, what's the word for it? Uh, I hate to say Stepford, but there's a little, little part of that little bit of Pleasantville going on. And, um, um, just not really exposed to a lot of different kinds of people and situations. And that was lovely growing up, but very unprepared for, you know, facing somebody who's very manipulative. And, um, and so, and going there for this coach and for this athletic program and having that go bad was just led to a total disaster. So I guess that leads us to college then and boundaries. So what does that road look like, Jessica? You get to school, now you're on your own, you're out of your parents' supervision uh, and you're a track athlete for University of Texas alone with the coach now full-time. Uh, what happens at this stage and how does that relationship with the coach progress? Okay, so for me, how did that, are you asking how that, Yeah. So you know, how did what happened to me? <laughs> yeah. So basically yeah. you, you get there and you've trusted your entire college uh, life to this guy, you know, and yeah. um, it goes yeah. horribly and, wrong. But and the, uh, yeah, he holds your scholarship. Right. And so for me, yeah, tell us about that. Tell us a little bit about the power of a scholarship and yeah, what mean, that was to you. You know, when you're when you have a full scholarship and it's in the hands of your coach, it really gives them a very unique um, place of power over you because you know it it's um, if if you are not meeting whatever it is that they want from you, it could be your academics, it could be your athletics, it could be your health. You know, I mean, there there are rules to protect that people and students, and I don't know what those are, but I definitely have seen scholarships yanked for various reasons whether they were technically allowed <laughs> to be done or not. And so, um, so that puts you in a position where you are very vulnerable to your coach. I mean, this coach has got your four years in their hand. And, you know, if you, if you upset them for some reason, um, if you, you know, aren't meeting all their different requirements, or if you're not fulfilling something that they expectations they have of you that's not related to athletics, which was the case for me, um, which was unexpected. I mean, the 
I arrived at school early to start training in the fall of 1999, and I was invited to dinner with um, my former coach and his wife and the assistant coach and their spouse. And, you know, he leaned over to me. I'd had my haircut, you know, new haircut for college. And he leaned over to me and he said, don't take this the wrong way, but that haircut's really sexy. And like, you know, I'm, I, and I've never heard something like that. I mean, I've, there's been some things that were inappropriate. I thought looking back, you know, just asking two personal questions, but to, to actually make a statement, direct statement like that was, was unexpected for me. And, and that's, that was, you know, I kind of thought, okay. And that was the first time I thought, oh, I, I must've misinterpreted that. I must've, it must be me. Um, and so those behaviors just escalated with time as that tolerance, I guess, was sort of built as I did nothing really about it, but sort of shrug it off and say that was weird maybe that's a maybe that like I don't know why that happened but you know I've just arrived at college like it hasn't even started yet I mean you know what are you to do I can tell you what I do now um, well that's right so that is a red flag looking back at it now what would you tell somebody in your shoes today what to do at that I, very I first dinner yeah, at that very first dinner, I would have said that is not an appropriate statement to make to your incoming freshman high jumper. Um, I, there is no right way to take that. That's that's not there. There's no reason to hear the word sexy between me and my coach. Um, so it was, I it, it was an unnecessary comment, and I would have called it out now. I would have no calling it out now but back then I just was shocked and don't think I did anything because that and that was my defense mechanism that was my safe place was when something inappropriate happened I would just freeze or sort of like stop and absorb it but not do anything there was no action that followed it sure and as a young young girl you don't really know either is it inappropriate like you just said or you're putting it on yourself thinking maybe I just don't know what what the go is here um, so that type of, that was grooming behavior starting subtly. And then how did that escalate with this guy? What, where did I mean, that lead? It was, it, you know, it, it was a lot of different things and I can't really this far out always be able to put them in the right order, but you know, it was things like calling my room every night to, you know, say, Hey, how was your day? You know, we, even if I'd already seen you at practice, you know, making sure I was in my room, going to bed. Um, so control there, there was, you know, a point where I had to write down everything I ate and report it. Um, there was a lot of weigh-ins. There was, you know, a time when I, I woke up and he was in my all girls dorm room. There was, he was in your room. Yes. I, what was he that doing was, that was, in your room? Uh, well, there, that was more towards the end when I had um, had an injury and I was, uh, I had a really, really nasty high ankle sprain and I was in my room and it was painful. Um, and I couldn't go to practice and there was, he was coaching the cross country team. And so he came to the dorm and my roommate was on the cross country team. So my assumption is I never got an answer from her, but my assumption is he had let her into the room and gone into the bathroom and left me alone. And when I, when I woke up in my my nightgown um you know he was in next to my bed and he pulled back the cover and was kissing my ankle so you know something like that um 
a point where he went to hug me after practice and I said, no, don't hug me. Oh, I'm sweaty. I'm gross. And he reached in and grabbed me and pulled me in and he licked up the right side of my neck, which to this day just makes me ill to think about. Um, so just behaviors like that, that, you know, putting his hands, you know, under my clothes. I mean, it, it was just, there were lots of events where, you know, it starts out with this one comment that's not appropriate, probably him testing the water, you know, and then I just sort of do nothing but sit there and I'm quiet and then, you know, just more and more behavior like that. And, and you know, I thought, I don't know why I thought I couldn't say stop. Don't do that. You know, I mean, even if I put up my hands and said, no, 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 but like, no, you know, like, no, um, because you can, <laughs> you absolutely can, you should. But I had this, I think maybe growing up in the South, maybe the way my parents raised me, but I had such this respect for, you know, my teachers and my coaches and, and nobody had ever really I'd had one coach do something weird, but it was very small and it never happened again. So I hadn't really had this sort of experience. So I just think I didn't know how to even process it. Did you feel that um, you were the only one going through this? Did you have, yeah, I'm just yes. tying back a little yes. bit to that letter that another athlete sent you before you accepted going to UT about this particular coach that that's sticking with me. And now here you are experiencing all of these things did you feel like you were the only one or? I did. The letter had this like talk about something that didn't have sexual, the sexual component to it. It talked about like mental, emotional abuse. And even then in everything I was going through, I couldn't even recall that letter. Like it took me a while. It took me till like many months later that I could actually even remember that letter had existed. And so I did. I was very, felt very alone. I never saw him do it to anybody else and nobody else saw him really do it to me. So I just assumed that it was only me. And then at what point, so what's the turning point here? There's a lot of slow grooming and now there's physical contact. You're obviously distressed by his physical behavior with you. Um, what's the, what's the next point? What's the tipping point? Well, so, you know, for me, I didn't want that behavior and I didn't, I, you know, even all the physical signs that said, no, like I never shouted it and pushed. And so it just kept happening. And so my mental health began to decline. Um, I had some problems with, I think just searching for control. I started developing some, you know, some bulimic activity where I would binge and purge, which I had lost some weight and I was in really good shape, but I started to just like kind of lose control. I started to not be able to sleep very well. Um, I, I went to a track meet where I was called into his room for a meeting, which don't need to happen alone in your coach's hotel room. There's no reason that should ever, I can't think of a reason that that's necessary. And I went to this meeting and it was that time when he put his hands under my clothes and I went out that day and I jumped at the same height. I jumped, I think, in seventh grade um, at, at a competition. So I, I couldn't compete. I was in the, I was never stronger, squatting more, running faster, you know, doing all these, meeting all these perimeters, but I couldn't compete. And I was having, starting to have panic attacks at the track. So it just, it really manifested 
And I think that's the reason that it came to a head so quickly. I think had I been able to really function, if I don't know, maybe there are people who can compete or make good grades in those situations, but I'm not one of them. I was just imploding. And so, you know, at some point talking to my parents, you know, what is going on? Um, I started to slowly give them a little bit like, well, my, he's, he's really, he's really mean to me and he calls me fat and he does these things. So I gave them a little bit just to help them understand, but I held on to the sexual stuff for many more months. And, um, and sometime around there, I mean, there was a lot, everything really came to a head at the end of our indoor season before our outdoor season. Um, one of the other female athletes did we, we revealed to each other what was going on. And it turns out that some of these things were happening to her. And I had no idea. I had no idea. She lived just a few rooms, you know, a few doors down in the dorm. And I had no idea that it was happening to her. So all these, um, just to touch on that, it's really important to, to look at the damage that this type of behavior in this um, sexual abuse um, can have. Tell us a bit about what you were going through in terms of your physical and emotional um, behaviors that were changing. It's something that can help other people recognize or maybe a person outside um, of someone that's being abused can recognize. Here you are in the middle of your supposedly best years of your life and you're talking about your grades and, and panic attacks at the track. Um, bulimic, um, eating disorders. Tell us a bit about that. Did you know what was happening to you? Had you had these things before? What was going on? Um, I had never had any of these things before. Like I, I had had an illness my senior in, in high school. And, and when I graduated, I knew that I, I had gained some weight and I knew that I needed to lose that. And I did, you know, when I got to college. Um, but this, like the the, I, I definitely had not experienced anxiety before. I mean, this was, I, I had no idea what was happening um, or depression and the sleeping problems. I mean, all of this stuff was so new to me. And I think that my go-to was self-blame. Like that, that was my go-to. I like, <laughs> I'm certain that, that I just internalized it. I've done something wrong. I'm doing something wrong. I'm not as good as I thought I was. I'm not as um, I'm letting everyone down. I'm, you know, I've, I don't know why this is happening to me with this, with this coach. I, why is this happening? What did I do something? Like, did I, why I, I don't understand it's, I've got all these other teammates and it's not having to, why is this happening to me? So I, I just took it all in and, um, and it just manifested with GI issues control issues, panic attacks, sleeping weird, you know, like sleep a quarter of the day awake, quarter of the day, sleep a quarter of the, the way. I mean, just very bizarre and, and nothing I'd ever had before. Um, so I just, I just really didn't know what to do with any of it. And here you are at college. Did you, did you get any help or did you just deal with it? You just going through so, every single day living like that. So once I realized that there was a woman on a young woman on my team who was going through similar things, I finally just felt relieved. And as we started to talk to other people, we found that there were some more people who maybe didn't experience what we did. It was a little bit different for everyone, 
but people had some things that they could say were like, finally, I was like, it's not me. It's not me. It's, it's just like, and that to me was like the first step and just like releasing it was just knowing that it wasn't just me. I mean, just there were others and I should have felt bad for them. You know, I should have, but I didn't, I just was just so thankful that it wasn't just me. And, um, and then I started to open up to my parents who were trying to understand what was going on. You know, I was, they could see I was in great shape and here I am in college and I, you know, and then, but I, I can't compete. And that's just so unlike me because they know I'd been nothing but successful for so long. They just, they didn't, they didn't even understand how it could be such great health and shape, you know, from the outside looking in and I couldn't do anything competitive wise. And so I kind of did get to the point where I was, they were like, my mom, like, what is going on? And so I had to, had to give from a little bit to help, to help, to give her an answer. And it was, it was, it was the honest answer, but I held a lot of that back. I, I wasn't ready to, to share it all. So when you talk about, and, and that's talking to your mom on the phone, correct? Yes. Right. So she can't see you. What, what physical, if she had seen you, would she have seen the, she saw a lot of weight loss. She saw a lot of weight loss, but she, she felt like, I mean, there's no handbook for a parent when you're training a, a high level athlete. And that wasn't anything any of their friends had. So they, they saw me getting really thin. They saw me getting very toned. So, I mean, physically I was changing, but you know, they thought maybe this is the part of the college experience, you know, but they also noticed I was having control with the food and they didn't like that. But I think they were also the loss. Like before I came home for how, for Thanksgiving, I said, I can't have pumpkin pie. And mom's like, okay, <laughs> don't have pumpkin pie. Like that's weird. I mean, looking back, my mom's like, that's weird. Like now she was like, oh yeah, it's because you were like, everything was getting, you were getting very controlled about all this stuff. And you were being controlled. Like somebody was weighing you all the time. Like I had no idea that that was a part of this. Um, so I, I think from the outside in, you know, my, my family wasn't there. And the only people surrounding me were track team, really. You know, I didn't have any other community. I didn't have an academic community. Like nobody, I didn't, if they weren't on my team, there was nobody there that would have seen what was happening. There so was, no, I had one friend, I had, I had one friend who was on the golf team and, um, and a guy who I ended up dating a little bit and he saw it. He was the only one and he saw it and he expressed concern, but I mean, again, he's what, 18, 19 years old. He doesn't know what to do about it. If I was sad or crying, he wanted to be there to help, but really not equipped to help me in a way that I needed. So as it's at this stage, how bad does it get? And at what stage are you starting to make decisions about what's next? Well, I knew I couldn't stay at UT because it, it was a very malignant program at that time. Um, as far as, you know, if you weren't competing well, wow, were you treated poorly? And I, I guess, I don't know if that's how they got their national championship or what, but I knew I couldn't stay. And um, I mean, my coach was holding my scholarship over my head and telling me you're not competing well, you know, they're going to take it away. I, I'm going to get in trouble because you're, because I gave you the scholarship. So, you know, again, lumping more of that guilt and, you know, just really like putting the insult, the salt on the wound. Um, and I knew I had to go. And so I started looking around and 
I got, I, I, so I got injured at the beginning of my outdoor season and I, it was such a bad injury. It took me out such a blessing that that happened to me because it, it took me away from the traveling team. So I got to be step away from that and talk to my parents a little bit more and start to open up a little bit more. And then when my mom came down and saw what a mess I was, that's when she immediately took me to the health center. You know, let's see someone about getting you meds to help you sleep. Let's, you know, and then starting to plan for the summer. When you come home, we're going to have you in therapy, you know, all like really setting it up. She didn't want me to finish the semester, but I was very stubborn. and I wanted to, like, I couldn't walk away from getting some through some of these classes. And so I stayed, but there was a plan in place for when I came home because she could see how unhealthy it is. And when I got home, things got even worse as far as she could actually see it with her eyes, what was happening every day. Cause I had started to self mutilate and cut my arms and try to hide it with like a, um, you know, like a bracelets and things. And, and, and she knew because she said, why are you wearing a, you don't wear a bandana on your wrists normally. We were like at Walmart and she was like, why do you have that on? And she grabbed it and she pulled it off and she saw it and she was like, oh my God. Wow. Oh no. Cause she knew being in mental health, like what was happening? Like she, it wasn't like I could say, oh, you know, I cut myself on blah, 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 blah. Like she knew the moment she saw what was happening. How were you feeling? What was that like to be in that situation? To hear you say that just sends chills through my body. I was in so much pain that the only thing that made me feel better was to cut myself. So, and, and like, I get a little bit emotional about it, but it's something that I've like thought back on and relived enough to where it's kind of, I'm able to kind of blunt it the way that it feels to go back there. It's just that I, I did let my athletics, I mean, I was, I was the ninth graduate in my high school class. I was, I could have gone anywhere I wanted to. I had the grades, I had the SATs um, and sport and academics were really important to me, but my love was sport. Yeah. And so, and it was a big part of my identity, which I think is true for a lot of athletes. You know, you really identify with that part of you. And I think it's important to realize that that is just one part because if it's taken away and sometimes it is because of something like this or your health or whatever, you know, it, it, it can take your whole sense of self away, even if you have these other things. And, and so, because I didn't, as much as I knew it was important to make good grades and I cared about it, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't put my self-worth there like I should have. And I, I, I just gave too much of my self-worth and my, I did like, if you were to say, who's Jessica, I would have said like, Jessica's a great high jumper, you know? Um, so I think it's so important not to do that. That's just, you can, you can do that, but you have to have a, a hearty list of all the other things. And even if those are things you're doing now, but like what your goals are so that you can round it out and see that if this one, one piece gets taken away, it really is just one. piece. That's heavy. Yep. And it goes back to when you're going to a university like that, um, having that administration and that entire team around you where the coach 
part of their responsibility would be to make sure your academic advisors are in place, make sure the emotional support networks are in place, what all, what all the resources around a university are available are made to you and that you're fully aware of that so that you can, you know, have access to, to all of those things. Is, uh, it just sounds like you were truly alone in this situation and without having your mom there where would that have left you if someone hadn't just come in and said no we're taking you home and we're gonna this there's we need to help you i i don't think that i would be where i'm at i mean i'm sure i would have in some ways made it through but i don't think i would be where i'm at i mean my my mom identified my mom helped create a plan my dad to make sure that plan followed through so it was it, and, and, you know, it's when people are going through a hard time, like people I see now and you say, well, they really need therapy. Well, they don't want to go. Well, of course they don't want to go. Yeah. The people who often need therapy, are not, the ones that need it the most are not the ones that want to go. So they, they took that decision. They took that out of my hands and said, no, you're going to go. You need this. And I know that that's a, a fine line to walk when you're making people do, but you know, I mean, they're, I, a lot of times when you're very depressed, you cannot, you do not have that initiative. You do not have that desire. You just want to, you're just down here and you don't see that light. And so um, if they hadn't been there, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know if I would have just, I'm sure I would have transferred. I don't know. I, I get, I honestly don't think I've ever thought about what it would have been like, but it wouldn't have been the same it wouldn't have been, I, I wouldn't have filed a formal complaint. I mean, I, I needed them to tell me, you know, it was wrong what happened to you. And it's okay to say that out loud. It's okay to say that it was wrong. And we have to call it for, we have to call it by its name, what it is, and we have to get it out there. And we have to, we have to talk about it because you can't carry this. And one day my, my mother was in her office crying. Um, I think it was the summer I came home or the year after that, she was just crying in her office and the medical director of psychiatry for Cook's Children's walked by and saw her and she said, why are you crying? Um, and she's a friend of my mom's and she was also my physician. And my mom said, because I don't even recognize my daughter. She's like a shell of herself. She won't look people in the eye. She's just looking down. She's like, she has this flat affect. She doesn't look like her. And my mom, my my psychiatrist said, she's going to be fine. She said, because she's facing this when she's 19 years old, not when she's 40 years old. So she is going to be just fine because we're going to take care of this now so that she doesn't have to carry this and face it. And she's, she legitimately said she doesn't have to face this when she's 40 years old. Wow. Incredible. So where did that lead after this, after you've had the summer and you're home with your mom, uh, you go back to UT and do you report this? So what happened is I, I decided to transfer during the outdoor season that was at the end of my first year at UT. So I, I decided to transfer at that point. And so I, as I looked at all the things that were available and I had a number of full scholarships like to Purdue and some other places, maybe not the same schools as before, but a lot of good programs. Um, I actually took a half scholarship to the University of Arkansas um, after giving up all those full scholarships because I had at the friend, uh, sorry, at the time, a friend there 
who said, this is safe. Like you'll be safe here. I've been here for a year. I'm on the track team. I'm not treated like that. My coaches don't get involved like that. That's not going to happen here. And that's my expectations went from, you know, I want the elite coach, the, the, the best student to just, I want to be safe. And, um, and so I went to the University of Arkansas, which was in driving distance, five hours from my home. And I had somebody there and I didn't, you know, I looked at the academics and she, you know, at that time she was pre-med and I was thinking of going pre-med. And so that was a good fit. And I transferred there the next year. Now that summer is when I filed the formal complaint. And during my first year at the University of Arkansas, there was some interviews and discussions and talking to lawyers at UT. And, and that was the second trauma because ultimately they, they talked to me, they made me revisit it, they interviewed all these people. And then they just came back and told me that, I mean, it wasn't super appropriate, but um, it wasn't sexual harassment or assault or anything like that. They called it boorish, um, boorish behavior. And, and that was the second trauma because I told the people, I felt like if I tell them what happened and my therapist and every, you know, they, you, you got to, you know, you, you, you need to tell somebody. And so I did it. I got up the courage and I sat down and I wrote this 25 page, 24, 25 page typed letter about everything that I could remember that happened. And I filed it and nothing happened. So that was just also and having to relive it for those first six months of my new university, I just, my depression got worse and I continued to self-mutilate. And so at the end of my first six months at the University of Arkansas, when that report came out and they said, nope, they didn't, you know, he's fine. He's fine. He didn't do anything or whatever. It was inappropriate, but slap on the wrist, anger management classes. That's when I told my parents, I can't do this anymore. Like, I can't, this is killing me. Like, I can't do it. I have to, like, I tried, I'm sorry They that they don't, they still don't believe me and they don't care at all. They just care about protecting themselves, I guess. I don't really know what their motivations were, but they weren't, they weren't the best for the best for the students. That's what they weren't. And just to clarify, who did you report to? So where's this coming from in the university? Who says licking your neck and all this 25 pages of report well, the, on this guy says it's boring? It was well, it was an internal review, right? So there was no, there was nobody outside of the university that was a part of that. And it was done by their legal team and it was signed off by the chancellor, the vice chancellor. Jeez. So I mean, I still have, screen. yeah, the paperwork that they signed. So it was, it was, it were, there were a lot of names that were high up in the administration that signed off on that. And to me, that was such a betrayal. I think that as time goes, goes on, I think that's one of the things that I wrestle with the most is just the complicity that these people, they, they knew better and they, they did nothing. I mean, that to me, that to me is the hardest thing to stomach about. I, I have so much anger wow. to this day. Like I'm, I have so much anger towards the University of Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's a different anger than I have towards that horrible coach, that predator. Um, you know, I'm, I'm unhappy with him, but I, it's, it's, I see him as just a very evil and or sick person. Um, but it doesn't really affect me the same way. When I look at the University of Ar 
of Texas and know that they knew and they did nothing, I cannot come to peace with that. And that's you. And then they let him go on to do this to however many other young student athletes for however many years he's been through the system up until just very recently, since you guys started your class action lawsuit and he's finally been suspended from coaching. But how many years since you filed that report, he was out there coaching I, at the I university level? 2000, 20 we years, 20, 20 years, 20 years. He was coaching. He went to, and I would, I would look it up every now and then he went to SMU. Then he went to Stanford. Then he went to, um, I think it was, I can't remember if it was Cal Poly or Cal Berkeley. And then, and then by the time we got him suspended, he was coaching at high school, which also begs the question, how does a, an elite high jumping coach at the university, why would they switch schools every two to three years and ultimately end up at high school? Mm. I think it's a very, that's very unusual. And I cannot think of many coaches who are in that situation. And I think it's very telling that he's, he's probably been moved about quite a bit. Um, and it's, there's probably been a lot of complicity at a lot of different places for this to happen like this. Oh, so Jessica, so it doesn't look like it got much better when you made your transfer, you would look to, so first of all, for those that don't know, how much does a college scholarship equate to monetary in monetary terms per year? Just let's hear that. What yeah, you turned I mean, out. I, I, it, it, I think, I, I don't think that I will ever really know because my parents picked up the other half, which I'm very thankful that they did. And I end up taking out some loans. They were very minimal. I mean, the, today's going to school in Texas, state, like I, I mean, Texas A&M, Texas what, that's what, you know, what are they, a hundred thousand a year? I mean, it's, huge it's price like, tags, regardless of where you go. So it, when yeah. I hear when I hear you say that, it it's just mind-blowing because you've worked your whole life to get to university and it's an incredible achievement and accomplishment. And you earn a scholarship, which it's a big price tag. And then to hear you say that you're transferring for these reasons. And then to go to a school for half a scholarship, just to be safe, it's a really sad, sad thing for, for me to hear. And then when you transfer to be safe, you don't sound like you've gotten any better and it actually gets worse. What, what happens? Where so, do you go from here when you're in this well, situation? Um, you know, I still had, once that lawsuit finally, I not lawsuit, the formal complaint. Once we finally just, I mean, there was no, what's the word I'm looking for? There was no um, closure. I just put it on the shelf. I just put it on the shelf and I said, I've got to move on. And so I, I actually lost my friendship because I was in such a bad place and I was leaning on them and asking for support and that that person, that friend of mine didn't know how to support me. And it, again, it felt like more betrayal. So I just completely started over. I made new friends. Um, I actually ended up becoming friends with a bunch of women on the volleyball team. One of my best friends um, was on that team. In fact, my daughter's nickname is after her. Um, and I, 
made friends in the, I switched from pre-med to pre-vet. And so I joined the pre-veterinary club and I got to know those people and I developed an academic community and did Golden Key and became president of that and got that community. And I just developed these communities in the in college, you know, in different places. You know, I, you know, through my, through my call, through my academics, through my extracurriculars, and then um, the coaches were actually really great coaches. In fact, they're, they are now like the national champions there. Um, and the, you know, they, they bounced me around between the coaches. I, the third one was a good fit and it would, it was very, very matter of fact and do this and do that and you'll do well. And, and that was exactly what I needed. And so I just, you know, I met someone, started dating and having an actual normal college relationship with another college student, which I had never really been afforded me because my coach wouldn't speak to me if he found out that I was going on a date or something like, I mean, we had a whole week where he wouldn't talk to me after I had a date with a basketball player at UT. So I got to date and I got to be a normal student. And then I just healed. And after my third year there, I ended up getting second at the NCAAs going from jumping, you know, nothing, um, my high school, my middle school height to, you know, achieving a personal best, um, tying for first, got second on just the misses of the bar, getting to be seventh in the nation. And when I was at these big meets, you know, it took me a long time um, to come back like physically and emotionally and, you know, just to recover. I mean, I, I lost, I would say I had one really good year. So I would say I lost three years to this one to the trauma, two to recover. And that third year, which I got a, I redshirted for injury. So I got an extra outdoor season, but that third year was my big year. And I'm so grateful for that. Um, and I knew after everything I went through that that's when I really understood that the athletics were that piece of that puzzle and, and that I was already looking to the next thing in graduate school and what is the big picture for me and um you know i i i survived and then i thrived and i'm grateful for that but it still doesn't make all that okay you yeah. know i don't think that anyone say that it was i mean there's definitely that silver lining and i'm so grateful for it but it still doesn't make it okay just because i was able to come back just to go back a little bit, it was hearing that you had no support. Um, what can you say to the people around you? This is something that comes up a lot where somebody's suffering in silence, a trauma like you have, and nobody knew how to deal with it. You're talking about college kids. What could we look at today for a kid that's in your scenario? What can they do if we're surrounded by college kids and they don't have the answers or they don't ask the right questions. What should we be doing when we find ourselves in those holes or dark places or dealing with something that's quite profound? I, I hope this is one case where we're using the internet, if nothing else, in this way to start that process because we didn't have that back then, right? So it truly felt like, what are you going to go pick up a book? Like, how are you going to? So 
there are some really nice online resources like No More or Rain or, you know, there are places that you can call and talk to someone that I never knew about. I mean, even if it's not somebody at your university, I mean, there are safe places at the university and those safe places may be outside the athletic department. I know there are probably universities that have safe places in their athletic department, but I cannot say which ones. And I know that that's not true universally. It wasn't true for me. I couldn't go to the athletic trainer and get support. What I found was more support for my coach. So it could be through the student health center that's outside of that. You know, it could, you know, that's, you can always talk to someone. It can be, you, you may be able to get it through academic advisors that are associated with athletics, or you may have to go outside of that, or it may be a professor that has nothing to do with your athletic career. I mean, there are those people. It's just finding the strength to be vulnerable, to talk to them about it and open up to them. How, how um, important would it be as an incoming freshman now to have that type of information provided to you as a preventative me measure, not sitting there in the middle of your university years, in the middle of traumatic sexual abuse by your coach, trying to work it out in the moment when you said you're cutting yourself and you're depressed. What part of our education should provide this going from high school, provide it then, and then again, when you're a freshman, what resources are I think, available? I think it is so important to do it before you go to college. I think it is so important to nail this down because when they go to, when a student athlete goes there, they're going to have their orientation, but that orientation is going to be so hyped up. You're going to, those things are going to be skimmed over, right? Those things are going to be, they're probably in there and they may be in the fine print, but I think helping, you know, I, again, if you go to college and you're expecting to find it there, that's going to be very tricky because I, unless things have changed greatly and maybe they have that support you're not going to be guided. So I think, I think it would be wise to identify what you can do in a situation if you encounter something like that and even have scenarios. I mean, I, this, this, this sexual assault and harassment that happened to me has affected the way that I talk to my children. And when my son was seven, I had to sit down during this lawsuit and explain what this lawsuit was about. And then I, I felt that I had to tell him, like walk him through a scenario where if somebody tries to put their hands in your pants, what do you say? And he's like, no. And I said, no, you say, no, you know, yell it and you push and you be aggressive. And that may be kind of inappropriate for a kid that young, but I, I would rather err on the side of having my kid be empowered really young to say no, like, I don't care. If it's the principle, it doesn't matter who it is. And then I will always believe them if something happens and that I want them to talk to me about it. And, and so, you know, my daughters are seven and in this next year, we're going to be having these same conversations and these same role-playing things that probably make them uncomfortable where I'm, you know, where I say, if somebody does this or tries to touch you, what do you do? And then I make them yell at me and push me. And I don't know, I mean, I'm, I'm a veterinarian, I'm not in child development or psychology, but I figure if at least they have tried it once and seen that it's okay, and their mom has been standing there telling them do this, you know, we need to tell those to high school. What if there's a high school girl who's never shoved someone back and said no, or put their arms up and said no? Like, I think maybe you have to 
prepare that the possibility like that of something could happen and what would you do and physically maybe act it out yeah and then also know like hey if something like this happens these are the these are your resources that are not that are, you don't have to go to your athletic program you don't have to rely on these people they can be a part of it you can pull them in but don't put all of your eggs in this basket and and just hope that they're going to do the right thing of course, if this trauma that happens to you is not related directly to your program, maybe maybe there will be that support, maybe not. But if it is, if that if that conflict is within your program, you have got to go outside of it. Yeah. I mean, this is coming from somebody who did go outside of it and it didn't work, but it's a new time. It's been past me too. And we've been through that. We're in that era. And so I've I I think there there's a better chance of being that heard. that brings us right up to present day and you you said it earlier you still have so much rage Jessica about all of this how's that translated in your life today with the class action lawsuit and what um, just give us a little insight into what you're doing what you want and and um what this um what this lawsuit can mean in terms of yeah. changing um, it's, you know, the lawsuit came out of Erin wanting to go public with her story. And give and, us, just introduce Erin for those that yeah, don't know so, her. So Erin Aldridge is a, um, she was a track and field Olympian and the national champion for the University of Texas. And she's um, been, she's been a guest here on Open Stance yeah. as well. So, um, and, and, you know, Erin and I were not friends and, and a friendship certainly was not um, encouraged by the coach who was having inappropriate actions towards both of us. So we were abused by the same coach. Um, and, and so it wasn't encouraged. And so I, I really felt Erin was sort of a nemesis until she called me at work in the middle of a surgery. Um, she actually tracked me down on, I guess, online and called my work and I was in the middle of a surgery. Um, and one of my technicians turned around and she said, do you know an Aaron Aldridge? And I mean, it could have been the Pope. I was like, excuse, I was like, what? who's on the phone? I said, what? And so I said, yeah, transfer that back here. And so they got the, they got a phone and they brought it over by surgery and put on speaker what, or held it up to my ear or something. It was near me. And I said, this is Dr. Johnson. How can I help you? And she said, this is Aaron. And I just said, are you calling about our coach? Because it, and she said, yes. And she started to tell me and she said, and I'm, I'm at this point, like I was just at the, like finishing up the surgery. I mean, and, and I said, you know, I, I just wanted her to tell me what happened? And she said, I, I should call you later, not at work. And I said, well, there's nothing you can say that everyone in this room hasn't heard. So you go right ahead. Um, because I was pretty open with, I mean, I've worked with these people for many years and I told them the story. So, um, so Aaron had reached out to me and she wanted to go public and share what her story. And she, she, there was one person she knew who a long time ago had filed the complaint against this coach and she tracked me down and I was very angry with Aaron at first. Um, and that was very hard for me to 
think that she knew back then and she didn't believe me, right? So that's, again, kind of reliving that people don't believe you trauma. And I have really worked through that and I understand now, happened to her. Um, but anyway, she, she asked for my support and I tried to find a lawyer because I was, did not understand the legal component. I mean, whatever I'd done before in the past that involved lawyers hadn't worked out for me. So I didn't know what was going to happen. And that's how we found a woman who said, you know, this really is a problem. This is a problem with the NCAA. And we started talking about, and I said, well, it's 2020, you know, 2019. I mean, that was 19 years ago, the rules, there's got to be these rules and, you know, da, da, da. And she's like, well, no. And so I started looking into it and I'm like, wait, wait, hold on. They're not, they haven't figured this out yet as far as like really putting boundaries on, you know, if the coach and the athlete, I mean, it's when I hear a coach athlete, you know, love story, I don't think that's cute. It just creeps me out. And I'm sure there are some exceptions, but um, I, I just, I don't have a, any love for that situation and certainly not with young girls. Um, which you are in high school and college. And, and so we, she said, well, there's an opportunity for change. And I think our, our goals are that, I mean, you first, there's a lot of layers to this, but if you do file a complaint, it, this is not something that should be handled entirely internally. I have seen how that works out and it, it does not necessarily go well. You need to have somebody who's advocating for you. Um, there should be more support. There should be more education. I mean, we shouldn't even be having to tell college students this for the first time. And I, I it makes me sad because we, we want our kids to have this innocence and this, but in the world we live in today, and, you know, I just, I feel like this education needs to be really starting in elementary school, to be honest. Yep. yep. Um, I once heard uh, somebody say that if, if a girl who's seven or eight gets touched inappropriately, she wants the hair on the back of their neck to stand up and for it to, to know at that point that it's no, it's not okay, stop. Yeah. And I think that that early education is, it, it's uncomfortable for a lot of people. It's not for me, because for me, it's just a very practical education. Um, but I, I think we need to get uncomfortable and we need to start preparing people because these predators will continue to be out there. You are extremely brave. And what you've done today, Jessica, thanks so much um, for everything. Hugely informational and just loaded with education. Um, I'm really sorry for what you've had to go through. And I feel very fortunate that we can have you here today sharing this incredibly personal experience and a really tough road that you've had to travel. Um, and it's, it's just magnificent that you're able to use your voice in such a commanding way and, and, and reach a lot of people that this can potentially um, just help educate and send them into their lives in a much more empowering and, and safe perspective. So um, thanks, thanks very much for being here. Um, and all the best with that lawsuit. Love to uh, keep us you know, posted on how that goes. And 
when this came to be, I thought, you know, I thought about what happened to my mom and I thought about what happened to me. And then I look at my daughters and I think it's got to stop somewhere. And if this is what I'm meant to have some sort of imprint on, it's not something that I ever wanted to, um, you know, this isn't the sort of thing that you have dreams about growing up, but it's, this is where we are. And if I can do something that makes them safer, I mean, that's a very real impact for me. And, you know, I'm, I hope that, I guess if I were to leave you with one thing, I would say that these, these students should know that they are very much empowered to say no and stop. And it doesn't matter if it's your coach and it doesn't matter if he's an Olympic Olympic level coach. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter um, or she or whatever that circumstance is, because um, we all deserve and we're all allowed to have boundaries and we can enforce them.